We read from Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. And when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. This is God's word. You may be seated. This past year, Westgate restated our vision revolving around the words, delighting in Christ above all else. So it's only appropriate that we look at these four short verses today, which give us the picture of that the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now this is especially poignant today because our society is continually becoming less and less biblically literate. And we have a tendency to reinvent Jesus. Uh, Biola professor J.P. Moreland said, In our postmodern secular culture, religion is being treated as privatized, relativized, blind faith, whose sole value is that it is meaningful to those who take that leap. In keeping with this milieu, Jesus has been reshaped and reinvented to fit virtually every ideology in sight. Fictional writers incorporate myths about Jesus and people walk away believing them. The Jesus Seminar has color-coded the words of Jesus in the Bible to inform those who are not as scholarly of what Jesus actually did say and do, and what he most likely did not say and do, effectively expunging the miracles and hard sayings of Jesus. Some on the right claim Jesus would speak to today's social issues exactly as they would. And some on the left see Jesus as a politically correct sage who would be in the forefront of today's popular cultural agenda. But most of us fit the description that's given in the book, Reinventing Jesus, which says, people gravitate toward a tame Jesus, a Jesus who can be controlled, a Jesus who is non-threatening, a Jesus who values what they value and does not demand anything of them at all, a Jesus who is not Lord and Savior. Who is Jesus? That's what we explore this morning. Let's pray. Our Lord, we admit that our prejudices in seeing, in seeing Jesus as we want to see him. This morning, give us ears to hear and eyes to see the true Jesus. It's not just the world that reinvents him. We within the church often reinvent him. Lord, May we trust him so much and trust your word so much that we see you anew and afresh today. Take away any wrong impressions we have of Christ 
and give us the real Christ. For when we see him, we will truly delight in him. Amen. Matthew faced a similar situation in his day. He wrote around A.D. 70, and the church by this time was almost all Gentile. The Jewish nation had rejected Jesus, and the people had bought into the teaching about Jesus that came from their religious leaders. They had the impression that Jesus uh, was an illegitimate child, an illegitimate prophet, a false Messiah, even one who possibly had demons. Matthew writes into this people who bought into this reinvention of Jesus in order to help them see the true Jesus. And that's why he begins his book with a genealogy. And if you notice in Luke, Jesus' genealogy goes back to Adam, first man. Matthew's genealogy goes back to Abraham, the father of the Jews. And it weaves its way through and by highlighting King David. Because the promise of the Messiah is found in David, that a king like David will rule forever. And so Matthew is showing them that Jesus has the pedigree of being Messiah. And then he peppers his words with references to Old Testament passages that speak of Israel or speak of the Messiah, and he applies them to Jesus. He says, Jesus fulfills these. He fulfills the promises that you've been waiting for concerning Messiah. And then he moves to the birth story of Jesus. Instead of focusing on the shepherds like Luke does, probably knows the Jewish people did not respect the shepherds, he goes to the other story of magi, Gentile kings, who come from another nation and show that the Gentile scholars were able to recognize Jesus for who he is, the Messiah. What of the Jewish people? What was their response? Well, the Jewish king sought to kill him. The Jewish chief priests and scribes, their leaders, who even the current generation is following, could tell the Magi, where Jesus, the Messiah was to be born, but they wouldn't travel six miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to examine the evidence. And so Matthew is clearly pointing out that you, the readers are following religious leaders who predetermined from Jesus' very birth that he was not Messiah, that he was a fraud. So let's examine the true evidence. And so Matthew continues to unfold and he brings out the prophet that was to precede the Messiah. The voice crying in the wilderness. So John the Baptist comes forth and he points to Jesus as the Messiah and he baptizes him. Then Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days just like Israel went out into the wilderness for 40 years. And he faces the temptations of Satan. And his response to all three temptations 
were quotes from Deuteronomy, the voice of God given during Israel's wilderness. And so Matthew shows that Jesus is the true Israel. He followed Israel, followed God in a way that Israel did not. And then he goes up to the mountain and he gives the new law, the Sermon on the Mount. In our passage now, he comes down from the mountain. And this is the first specific miracle recorded in the book of Matthew. And what's interesting is that his choice of the miracle that he's going to highlight. If you look in Mark and in Luke, the first miracle that Jesus performs is he casts demons out of demoniacs. What's the message there? Jesus has power over Satan and evil. The first miracle recorded in John is Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding. And what John is trying to show us in the first miracle is the nature of Jesus' ministry. He comes to bring us new wine. He comes to bring us a celebration. He comes to actually bring us a marriage between us and him. Matthew begins with the story of Jesus healing a leper because he is trying to show the Jewish people exactly who Jesus is and what he came to do. And we see this in four verses. Uh, Daniel Wallace, uh, professor at Dallas Seminary, said this, Jesus' miracles were not ends in themselves. They point beyond the powers of the person, revealing the extraordinary identity of the one exercising the authority of God. Thus, we might think of these miracles as theological audiovisuals, illustrating spiritual truths about the one performing them. Sometimes these truths were lost on eyewitnesses to the miracles. Other times they were not. What he's saying is a passage like this is an audiovisual, theological audiovisual, to show us who this person is, and in this case, also what he has come to do. So what does it show us? Well, it starts with when he came down from the mountain. What was he doing up on the mountain? He was teaching. And Matthew's saying, and he's already shown, Jesus is a great teacher. He is the greatest of teachers. So we, we look at the Sermon on the Mount. What's so, what's so phenomenal about the Sermon on the Mount? Well, he captures the essence of what he's going to say in 520 when he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes, of the, the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so he's saying is, I have a teaching that is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Why? Because the scribes and the Pharisees focused on the external, on the outside, what people do. The Sermon on the Mount focuses on the inside, in the dynamics of the heart and the character. And this was revolutionary. He begins with the Beatitude, Blessed are who the poor in spirit, the peacemakers, the merciful. He speaks about what's going on inside people. Now he doesn't leave it there because he says what's going on inside 
needs to show itself on the outside. You are the salt of the earth. You're a city. You're a light. Set yourself on a hill so that everyone might see God's good works through you. Then he talks about what is the law really about? It's not about the external. It's about the internal. You've heard it said, do not commit murder, but I say anger inside you is the seed of murder. said, don't commit adultery, but Jesus says the lust inside of you is the issue because that's what causes adultery. Then he calls us to authenticity. He talks about the the Pharisees who blow trumpets before they give, but we're to give in secret. Those who pray on the corners, loud voices, so they might be able to impress other people with their prayer life. And Jesus says, go into your room, into a closet where nobody sees you. Because it's really not about the outside. It's about being the authentic person with a heart for God. He goes on and says, don't be judgmental. When you judge, judge with grace. Judge with understanding. Judge with empathy and judge with truth. And then he brings us to the golden rule, summing it all up. This is the life of love. Treat everyone the way you want to be treated. And he does say right in the middle, Be perfect, for the Lord your God is perfect. He's not setting up a standard saying, expecting us to be perfect, but what he's saying is, the life I'm calling you to is the life God himself would live out. So Jesus is a great teacher, and we see at the end, it says, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one with authority not as their scribes. And so through this teaching, Matthew is establishing the authority of God. But I think these words so impressed the people because they resonated with the hearts of the people. Does it not resonate with us that God really wants our hearts? That he wants the transformation inside before it shows itself on the outside. That he wants us to walk in the footsteps of God himself. To treat others the way we want. Those truths resonate with us. The reason is the God who made our hearts brought that teaching to us. The Jewish people struggled with the teaching of Jesus because their leaders had reinvented Jesus. Today, most people don't struggle with the teachings of Jesus. They realize he is the greatest of teachers. What they struggle with is what comes next. Jesus reveals himself as God. Is he... When we have to deal with the fact that Jesus is God, we have to deal with what he has said. When we are any other person who teaches, we, we can look at their teaching, examine it, reject it, accept it. But if Jesus is God, then his teaching is truth itself. It's not up for debate. 
And so we like to reinvent him as a great man and prophet, but not as God, yet he is God. This is first hinted at in the first words where it says, Jesus went up the mountain. Why? Excuse me, he came down from the mountain. When we couple that with the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, he went up the mountain, he gave the sermon, and he came down from the mountain. Remember, Matthew is writing against the background of the wilderness experience of Israel. What happened in the wilderness experience? Moses goes up the mountain, hears the word of God, descends from the mountain. When Jesus goes up the mountain, he doesn't go up to hear the word of God. He goes up to give us the word of God. Not reciting the word of God from any book, but giving us the word of God from his very person. So now he comes down. And this is, this is confirmed by the, the address that the leper has of Jesus. It says, Behold, verse 2, the leper came to him, knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now this word Lord can be taken in one of two ways. It can be a reference to a, a great leader. Lord. Or it could be a reference to God himself. It's the context that determines if they're simply saying, you are a great leader, or if he's saying, you are God. It says, the leper bowed down to him and said, Lord. The word bow down here is the word that's usually used for worship. You know, when... People fall down before angels or other people. Those angels or those leaders will say, get up, I'm not God. Jesus does not do that with the leper because he is God. It's something Matthew's already referenced when he speaks of the angel coming to Joseph in a dream. And he says, this child fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah that Emmanuel, God with us, will be born. Jesus is God. Now, this is an astonishing claim that usually does not work with Jewish people. For the Jewish people, especially at this time, would begin their day with the Shema, which said, the Lord our God is one. They would end their day with the prayer, the Lord our God is one. They would repeat it often through the days. It was, it was woven throughout their holidays and their Sabbaths. And they would often be their dying words, the Lord our God is one. And so in their minds, there's one God if you are claiming this man is God, then you are false teachers. You are blasphemers. And if a man would claim to be God, he is a blasphemer worthy of being crucified. As another author says, the incarnation, Jesus being God in the flesh, 
first scandalized the Jews because it threatened their commitment to radical monotheism. Christian Jews like Paul or John had to wrestle with the possibility that they were compromising their faith. What's more, the doctrine surely represented an obstacle in the church's mission to Judaism. Hence, the Jewish leadership of an infant church had to have very deep convictions about the incarnation or they would have abandoned it. The teaching that Jesus is God was a hindrance to the gospel moving among the Jews. Matthew is trying to convince Jewish people of who Jesus is, that he's Messiah. He would never show Jesus as God unless Jesus truly was God. And that's the proclamation here. What's interesting as we, in this passage is the little statement there of Jesus to the leper after the leper is cleansed. In verse 4, Jesus says, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. And Jesus regularly says this, and it's a very curious statement, especially when a lot of people have already witnessed the miracles, and he says, now don't tell anybody. And we're like, aren't your miracles an attestation to who you are? And then what they say, if you're, if you're Messiah, prove it. Show us a miracle. And the, the miracles of Jesus are attestations. They are proofs that Jesus is the Messiah. He is who he said he is. So why does he tell people, don't tell anybody? The reason is, the stories the people are going to spread will focus on the miracle itself. They will be spreading the news that Jesus is the Messiah who has come to fix the world right now. That's not what Jesus is coming to do. He will come and fix the world, as we just sang. But his first coming was to come to die for our sins as a servant to us so that he could fix the world. And he could begin fixing it right now through believers. And so, in some ways, Jesus is saying, don't go out there because people will reinvent who I am if you just focus on the miracles. Um, and so, Matthew's very clear that he had the same issues we face today. And we see that's happening in John chapter 5. Remember when Jesus feeds the 5,000? And everybody's astonished, and what do they do? They want to make him king. And so he runs away. Again, we're like, I thought you were supposed to be Messiah. Why are you running away when they finally want to make you king? And when Jesus returns, it becomes evident. They say, we want you to feed us like God fed Mo Moses' people with manna. And Jesus essentially said, that isn't what I came for. I came and did this miracle to show you I am the bread of life. The response, they all walk away except his 12 disciples. And that's what Jesus was worried about. People twisting who he is, why he came at that particular time. So we see that Jesus is a great teacher. 
And he's much more. He's God himself. Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. His name is Jesus, which means Savior. And that word encapsulates what Jesus came to do. He came to be our Savior. Uh, We see that in this passage where Jesus cleanses the leper. Why? How? Because leprosy was a picture of sin and the sinner and the consequences of sin. Leprosy was held out as the, the worst of all uncleanness. Grant Osborne, Osborne expresses what just about every commentator of the book of Matthew says. Leprosy was in some ways the most serious illness for cultic regulations and became the symbol for sin's pollution. The one with leprosy is personally disformed, just like sin disforms who we are. Not simply on the outside, which does show through our aging, but more so on the warping of who we are on the inside. The leper was banished from society. They had to go about with torn clothes, unkempt hair, and they had to holler, unclean, unclean, when they walked in. Just like sin separates us, not just from ourselves, but it separates from us from one another. Instead of a world of love, we have a world of bitterness and, and hate. Love is sprinkled in because we're made in the image of God. But sin is what really rules. And the leper was banned from going to the temple. Banned from the presence of God. And that's what sin does to us. It separates us from a holy, just God. When the leper asks for Jesus' help, he doesn't come to Jesus and say, will you heal my leprosy? He says, will you make me clean? More than him wanting physical healing was he wanted the cleansing work that Jesus Christ could bring. Jesus Christ is our Savior. So, when Jesus heals them, Jesus says, go to the high priest. Now, who does the high priest represent? The high priest is the mediator between man and God. The high priest is representing the response of God. And so we have in this picture, we have a sinner who Jesus cleanses, who then stands before God as being clean. That's exactly what Jesus Christ is doing in our lives. We are sinners cleansed by Christ so that we could stand before God. And it says, Jesus says to him, bring the offering, bring the gift that a leper is to, cleansed leper is to bring. What is that gift? Two live birds one taking the place of the other. And we have that picture here as well, that Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin 
by taking our place, taking our sin upon himself so we could be clean. The leper says, Jesus, if you will, will you cleanse me? And it says, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Jesus touched the leper. That was scandalous for a religious person to touch a leper. No one was to touch a leper because anyone who touched the leper was unclean. Jesus didn't have to touch the leper to heal him. He could have said, be healed. He could have waved his hand, you're healed. But Jesus intentionally touched the leper so that he would be seen as unclean so that the leper could be clean. That's what Jesus Christ does on the cross. He touches us in our sin by taking our sin upon himself so that we could be clean before God. We could be restored to the people we're intended to be. We could have hearts of love now so that we, we love God and we love our neighbors as ourselves and that we can be restored to God and walk in communion and relationship and fellowship uh, with him. And it is this gift offering that shows that. We read in Deuteronomy about this offering. It said, The priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed, two live clean birds. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthen vessel over fresh water. He'll take the live bird, dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. He'll sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleaned of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and let the living bird go into the open field. And so it is the blood of the sacrificed bird that cleanses, that that is the picture of the cleansing of the leper, but it is also the cleansing of the other bird which is set free. We are the bird that needs have the blood of Jesus Christ sprinkled on us. He had to die so that that could take place. Therefore, we now become the bird who is freed. That's the picture of what Jesus has done for the leper here. Second Corinthians 5.21 sums it up. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might have the righteousness of Christ. So, what did the leper do to get the cleansing of Jesus? He asked him. Even though Jesus died for all of our sins, it's not applied to us until we go to him and we ask him. The leper said, Lord, if you will... You can make me clean. So the leper, first of all, recognized he was unclean. Because of his leprosy, he was unclean. He realized 
he couldn't clean himself. And he realized Jesus could cleanse him. He doesn't come to Jesus and say, Lord, if you can, cleanse me. He says, Lord, if you will. He knows Jesus Christ can heal him, cleanse him. It's just a question of Jesus' will. He knows he's a leper. We need to know we are sinners. He knows that leprosy makes him unclean. We need to know that our sin makes us unclean. This is where a lot of people stumble today. Most people would admit, well, I've done some things wrong. They might not label it sin, but we all know nobody's perfect. I know I've made mistakes. It was an error in judgment, but in every case, people know they have sinned. What they don't realize is that that sin separates them from God. Many say, I may have sinned, but God's going to forgive everybody. The leper knows he needs cleansing. We need to know that not only do we sin, but that sin has made us unclean before God. The leper knows he can't do anything to save himself. He turns to Jesus. We need to know we can't save ourselves. You see, there are some people, some who say maybe I don't really sin, but we do. Then they might say, well, I do sin, but God's going to accept me anyway. No, he doesn't accept us in our sin. And then we might say, well, if he doesn't accept us, then I'll work harder. I'll become more religious. Or I'll do more for society and make up for my sin. And the leper would say, you can't. And Jesus would say, you can't. And so the leper says, Lord, if you will. So what we need to do is turn to Jesus and say, Lord, will you forgive my sins? And we already know the answer. It's in the Bible. The New Testament is completed. Jesus Christ said, I will. He went to the cross. He died for us so that we could be clean. What do we have to do? We need to go to Jesus and say, not are you willing, but say, we know you were willing. I know you took my place on the cross that I deserved. You took the hell that I deserved. I believe you are my Savior. The whole issue here is because became, was Jesus willing? And we get that answer later in Matthew, the night Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wrestles with that. He says to God, well, he says to the disciples, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch me. And going a little further, Jesus fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup, and you heard in the previous sermon just a week or so ago, that cup is the cup of God's wrath, the cup of God's judgment against sin. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, but as you will. Jesus said to the leper, I will. 
And when he went to the, to the shadow of the cross, he said to the Father, your will, I will follow. Why was Jesus willing? Look at the cost he paid. He took our sin. He took not just Bruce Daggett's sin upon him. That would be horrific enough. But he took your sin as well. He took the entire church's sin upon himself. But he didn't just do that. He took the sins of Massachusetts, the sins of the U.S., the sins of the present world, but not just the present world, the past world and the future world. If my sin deserves hell, imagine what he experienced by taking the sins of the world on him. Why would he do that? Why would he say, I will? I think it's a parable gives us insight into the answer. He says later in Matthew chapter 13, again, the kingdom of God is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went out, sold all that he had, and he bought that pearl. We often ask the question, who's the merchant and who's the pearl in this story? Are we the merchant who finds the great pearl in Jesus? Or is Jesus the merchant who found the great pearl in us? The answer to that question is yes. I believe it's both. Because it's very clear in Scripture that Jesus as God himself in the full glory of God looked down on this world with his Father and said, I prize them, I treasure them. They are a pearl of great price. I am willing to give everything for them. When we realize that type of love that Jesus has for us, it's then we see that Jesus is the pearl of great value for us. That he is so valuable that we treasure him so much. We are willing to sell everything so we could have him. We worship Jesus Christ. We serve Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ treasured us so much. We will treasure him above all else. May that be our pursuit in this new year. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Four short verses with oh so much to say, not just to the Jews in Matthew's day, but to our culture, Western culture today. Lord, I trust that you've broken through our hearts taught us this morning not to reinvent Jesus because he is so beautiful as he is, but that you might have spurred our hearts, your spirit might have entered in in a special way to bring us these truths of Jesus Christ, make them alive in our lives 
so that we will be people, we will be a church that treasures Jesus Christ, that brings that treasure out into Metro West and out into the world. In Christ's name, amen.